you don't know me, my name is Denzel. Um, yeah, it's a real pleasure to be here this morning and to see all your faces. Um, to, to, to all my Nigerians, uh, happy Independence Day. Kilon <laughs> Shele. I wanted to say, um, God bless you in Yoruba or in Ibo, but I looked online and couldn't find anything, and I didn't, and I, and I didn't want to try. I didn't want to try. How do you say, how do you say God bless you? Can someone help me? No? <laughs> What's that? Olowu. Wow. I'll, I'll try. I'll try later. <laughs> What's that? So, Olowu. 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 Bukun. Eh. Okay, there you go. <laughs> he just wants to laugh at me. He just wants to laugh at me. <laughs> I'm not trying next time. I'm not trying next time. Um, we're going to be continuing in, in, our, in, our, in the series, um, uh, going through Luke, Jesus, uh, humanity's only hope. And um, today we're, we're going to visit a popular story, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And um, although it's popular and I'm sure you've heard it growing up and so on and so forth, I, I encourage you not to switch off. Um, so I've entitled today's sermon, The Golden Rule. The Golden Rule. Um, does anyone know what the golden rule is? Uh, uh, yes, do unto others as you do unto yourself. Um, yes, that's kind of the conventional golden rule. But we'll, as we go through the text, we'll see if that is truly the golden rule, as it were. So I'm just going to read, and then we'll get straight into it. Um, we're going to read from Luke 10, 25 to 42. Luke 10, 25, 42. I'll give you a minute to turn there if you want to look in your, in your own Bibles. <clears throat> and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, the Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think? 
proved to be a neighbor. Sorry, to the man who fell among the robbers. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into a house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. This is God's word. A lawyer one day comes to Jesus and starts asking questions. Uh, now, the lawyer isn't the kind of lawyer that we would think of, right? He's not Harvey Specter or Johnny Cochran. He's from the crew of the Pharisees. He's from the crew of the religious leaders. And they aren't big fans of Jesus. But he's not a lawyer for no reason, right? He studied law. He studied the law of Moses his whole life. He's an expert in the law of Moses. And he asked Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Or in other words, what shall I do to inherit life in God's kingdom? This isn't a bad question, but it's asked with a bad motive, right? He's not asking in good faith. He doesn't truly want to know. Again, he's an expert in law. He presumes that he already knows. But he's trying to open up an opportunity to use his legal knowledge to show Jesus up. And to his question, Jesus responds, well, you're the lawyer. What does the law say? And the lawyer points out two laws that sum up the whole law. Uh, and Jesus agrees with this, and Jesus himself has taught this elsewhere. Those two laws are love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two laws. Now, a couple of things stand out about those laws. The first thing uh, is this. There's a saying that absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? If you've ever watched The Simpsons, uh, Mr. Burns is someone who is often drunk on his own power. He owns a nuclear power station. Evidently, he loves power, so he owns a nuclear power station. And he spends most of his time watching his employees on the CCTV and... If he ever sees them enjoying themselves, then he creates some kind of new law or some kind of new rule or restriction um, in order to trip them up so that they, you know, he might fire them if he feels that that day he wants to fire some people or if he wants to make changes to his power plant. And he does it just because he can, just because he has power. God isn't like that. God's law isn't a power-hungry, unpredictable, random mashup of do's and don'ts just because he can. The character of God reflected in his law is not one of impulsive chaos. It's not one of someone who is drunk on their own power. God is a God of loving, 
reasoned, righteous, and just order. And you see that because in the Old Testament, you have 600 laws. I mean, over 600 laws. Again, 600 laws are quite a lot of laws. But the 600 laws can actually be summed up in 10 commandments. And the Ten Commandments can be split in two. The first four are love God. The, second, the, the last six are love neighbor as yourself. The whole point or the whole essence of God's law can be summed up in four words. Love God, love neighbor. Every one of those hundreds of laws in the Bible will come under one of those categories. That's because God is a God of loving, just, and righteous order. He doesn't just kind of make up new rules to trip people up, which people often think is the case. The second thing, which I think I've said before, uh, is that those two commands are in the correct order. Right? We are to love God first and then to love neighbor. We're so used to hearing when people talk about you know, world peace and fighting injustice and what have you, that, you know, the solution is um, we need to get back to the golden rule. We need to treat our neighbors as we want to be treated, right? And that's something that all religions agree on. And if we all just did that, then we can fix humanity. We can fix all of our problems. But that's not the golden rule because it comes second. Right? So if it was a race, it would be the silver rule, right? if you like. The true golden rule is that of loving God. God is the foundation. The reason the second command comes second is because without the first, it has no foundation. If the second command is to be good to your neighbor, we must realize... That, that isn't good enough by itself because you cannot define good without God. There's no starting place for morals outside of the God who gives the moral law. You hear this all the time. People say, we don't need God to be good. But you cannot ultimately define good without God. You can't have it both ways. Without God, there is no true or final meaning of the word good or the word love. Without God, good is a subjective concept, right? It's something that I make up based on my personal liking. And it's not just, you know, even individually, but even at the level of society, it's the same thing. It's, if, if there is no God, then good is made up. You know, there, you know, there was a time, there, you know, there was a point at which society decided that slavery is okay. If there is no God, good is made up by us. Without God, we are all just the Mr. Burns, just doing things on impulse and whim and will. And some will say, no, 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 no. We know what good is, right? Good is doing something or not doing something that doesn't harm someone else, that doesn't harm another human being. But if there is no God who made us in his image and gives us human dignity and worth, why should I care? You can talk about world peace and charity all you like, 
But fundamentally, if there is no God behind the second commandment, at the end of the day, there is no real and ultimate reason to care if people are harmed or helped. Because without God, there is ultimately no good or bad. Without God, there is no right or wrong. But God is the foundation of all that is good. And so if we want to fulfill the second commandment, we have to pay attention to the first. If you get the first command wrong, you will miss what is most important and get the second command wrong also. If you get the first command wrong, you will miss what's most important and get the second command wrong also. This is how, you know, the fight for injustice can turn into a communism that kills human freedom and that kills human beings. That is how love for one group can be twisted into hatred for another group. Those who proclaim to love women are okay with hating men. Or those who are, or those who proclaim to, you know, love black people are okay with hating white people. A warped love will come from a warped view of God. The last thing to notice is that the first command to love God draws in the whole human experience, right? It involves the whole human creature made by its creator. It says, love the Lord with all your heart. The heart is the seat of the emotions and feelings, right? Many Christians think that it's holy to be stoic and stiff and unfeeling. But God says, love me with all of your heart. That is all of your emotions, your tears, as well as your laughter. Love God with all your soul, that is with the very deepest part of you, the very deepest part of your spirituality. Right, there might be some of us who are book-heavy and intellectual, but faith is a reality that is deeper than just the mind. It's deeper than just the intellect. Some of us might yearn for more of a mystical, spiritual experience, to become one with divine, with the divine through, you know, mediums or incense or the ancestors or what have you. But we can only truly come into contact with the divine through Jesus. And through him, we become partakers of the divine nature. That is the only true divine. And so we are to love God with our soul, with the very deepest part of us. We have to love God with all of our strength. A love for God that is animated, that is visible in our bodies, in love and service to our neighbor, right? You know, our bodies are not something that is evil, something that is to be escaped, as many people believe. But God purposefully made them so that we can worship. He made them for relationship and he made them for work. Love God with all of your mind. God wants a mind that is fully engaged. 
Uh, in, in primary school, I remember when the teacher called everyone to attention, uh, they would say, everyone put your thinking hats on. Um, many people these days think that if you believe in Christianity, you're taking your thinking hat off, right? But relationship with God is intellectually lively, right? It's mentally consistent with reality and rationality. You know, Spurgeon called knowing God the highest science. Knowing God is to engage and to fill the mind. It's not like Buddhism where, it, where, where the meditation tries to empty the mind and tries to, you know, tell you to, in, in one sense, lose yourself, lose your thinking. But true faith is one that engages the mind. It fills it. And so, and so we are to love God with soul and heart, body and mind. God cares for the whole being. In loving him, God does not require us to become less human. But in loving him, we become fully and truly human. We become what we were made to be when we love God. And he wants all of our being, the inner being as well as the outer being, in relationship with him. So that we can truly find and experience God at every level of our humanity. And if we worship other things, if we give our mind, our soul, our heart, our bodies to other things above God, it only leads to destruction and to death. So those are the two commands. Love God, love neighbor as yourself. And they are the center of God's law. Jesus says, verse 28, there's your answer. Do that and live, Mr. Lawyer. And it sounds simple enough, right? It's only two commands. Uh, but they are commands that we in and of ourselves cannot do. The law is simple. God keeps it simple, but impossible. The law is simple, but impossible. Because we are all corrupted by sin. There is something in, in, in each and every one of us that repels God. None of us love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And none of us perfectly, consistently love our neighbor as ourselves. In fact, we often use our neighbor as a means to love and serve ourselves. And so it's not that we just don't, it's that we can't. It's not just a, a lack of desire, it's a lack of ability. And instead of admitting that, the lawyer asks a follow-up question. And he asks the follow-up question to justify himself, right? It's a defense mechanism. If you don't want the law to accuse you or show that you fall short of the law, then what we usually try to do is we try to change it or we try to avoid it or we try to soften it or limit its, its reach, right? Children do this sometimes. Jack, I told you not to ride your bike outside today. But you didn't say I couldn't ride my scooter. <laughs> the lawyer misses what is most important. He deflects and tries to get into a philosophical debate over words 
and over the fine words of the law and split hairs so that he can escape the responsibility of the law. You know people that, you know, you t- you, like you talk about something, di- um, you know, quite difficult and they're like, ah, but who really is my neighbor in it? It's a deep question. Yeah, I'm not sure, man. I'm not sure we can, you know, even get to the answer, bro. I'm not sure. But we've got to keep, you know, learning and growing, innit? All right, see you later. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but Jesus doesn't fall for that trap, right? And here we come to the parable of the Good Samaritan. Again, many of us will be familiar with it and we will know it. A man is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Um, and, that, and that road, or, or here Jesus references a real road, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a journey that is about 17 miles long. It's a very dangerous road that is about 600 feet high. And the road is known in Jesus' time as the bloody way, right? Because one, it's naturally just dangerous. But two, it's got caves and crevices and places that people can hide. So you have criminals who you know, jump out at people and rob them and beat them. The man is going down that road. He's attacked by bandits. He's beaten half dead. He's robbed. And he's left there in the street. A Jewish priest sees him. He notices him and walks past him. A Levite, who is someone who works in the temple, who works with, you know, with, in dealing with things to do with God, he sees him, he notices him, and walks past him. And a Samaritan, who is not a Jew, sees him, notices him, but avoids him. Sorry, but doesn't avoid him. He has compassion on him. And he helps him at his own expense in a way that the man's own people were not willing to do. Again, we're very um, controversial. Sorry, we're very familiar with this story. But the story is actually, to the first hearers of it, it was very controversial. Because Jesus, in answer to the lawyer's question, he brings out the deep prejudices of the time and of the culture. Right? The Jews hated Samaritans. They thought of Samaritans as traitors, as the worst of the human race. The Samaritans were Jews who had mingled with other races or other ethnicities, and they had oppressed Jews. Uh, you see you know, some of that in the book of Nehemiah. Jews wouldn't walk near where Samaritans lived. In the Jewish mind, there is no such thing as a good Samaritan. When we were going through Mark, um, Rich T gave us a, a, you know, a helpful picture of the original impact of that story. And that if we were to change the characters to fit a bit more to our context or a bit more to the narratives of today... The man who was beaten by robbers would be an innocent black man. The priest would be a nation of Islam leader. The Levite would be a Black Lives Matter leader. And the Samaritan would be a redneck white police officer. The expectation is that the the priests and Levites are the good guys and the Samaritans are the bad guys. 
Now, the priests and the Levites, or Levite, may have had a good reason to not help the man, right? They both work in the temple, and there are certain laws and restrictions within the temple. If you touch a dead body or a bloody body, then you will be seen as unclean, and you can't complete your work in the temple. And so if they see a man on the road, they're thinking, I don't want to get involved in that because I won't be able to work in the temple. If that's not good enough, then maybe it's because it was a dangerous road, right? If you're going to stop on this bloody way and help someone, it could be a setup. It could be someone lying there. They just got some tomato juice on them and spilled the, put blood on them. And as you bend down to help them, you've got some robbers that jump out at you and rob you as well. Could be. But ultimately, Jesus' point is that they didn't have any real excuse. The priests and Levites were experts in law. They were leaders of God's people. But they miss what is most important. And that is the mercy of the law and the mercy of God. And this is something that God in the Old Testament and Jesus here in the New Testament rebukes Israel's leaders for. In Hosea 6.6, God says to Israel's leaders, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not the formality of the law. In Luke 11, uh, we'll come to that in a, you know, a couple of weeks. Jesus says, woe to you Pharisees, woe to you religious leaders, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb. You pay your religious dues and neglect justice and the love of God. They, in one sense, fulfill the law or try and fulfill the law while missing the whole point of the law. In contrast, this Samaritan, this enemy of Israel, sees what the priest and the Levite just saw, and he has compassion. He first has inner compassion. His heart is moved at seeing another human being made in the image of God in suffering. But he doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just say, oh, that's really sad. But he then has active compassion bodily compassion. The Samaritan is the same as the priests and Levites. He's still on a dangerous road. It still might be a setup. It still could be a trap. But he shows compassion at his own risk. He takes out his own oil and his own wine as antiseptics. And he cleans the bloody wounds of a man he doesn't know. No mask, no gloves. I'm not sure many of us will be doing that, touching people's blood. He takes out his own cloth, his own possessions, in order to bandage the man's blood or the man's wounds. He carries on him the, you know, with all his strength, the limp weight of an unconscious man and puts him on, on his donkey. For those of us who have children, when, when children have a nap and they act like they don't want to wake up, carrying them is very difficult, right? But an adult man, right, an adult, carrying an adult man in, in just limp weight itself is hard. 
The Samaritan inconveniences himself. He puts a pause on whatever it is that he was doing, wherever it was that he was going, and he finds an inn that will look after the injured man. And at his own expense, he has him taken care of with his own money. He promises more money. And he says, not if I come back, he says, when I come back. How many of us, <laughs> I do this often, how many of us say, oh, you know, we'll catch up. And you don't say, you don't put any date on it. You just say, oh, yeah, we'll catch up. You put it out into the atmosphere, but you never do it. <laughs> and, you know, it's interesting because, you, you know, you have to wonder, the man who was beaten, the man who was taken care of, if he was conscious, if he was in a better state, would he, you know, would he associate with the Samaritan? It's unlikely that he would. And perhaps the Samaritan looks at him and knows that he's a Jew, and he knows that. But he still shows mercy. So verse 36, Jesus flips the question then onto the lawyer. The lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? But Jesus' answer in this parable is, you are the neighbor. Neighborliness if you want to call it that, neighborliness is not something to be found in other people. It's not about how lovable or how likable people are to you. The real question is not who qualifies as my neighbor. The question is, to whom can I be a neighbor? That is the true extent of the law. It's not about those who we like or those that we consider our, our own people. A Christ-like love extends even to someone you might consider an enemy. And in our Western society, we don't call other people enemies. And so sometimes that's a bit hard for us to grasp. But perhaps it might be someone that makes you want to walk out the room as soon as they walk into the room. Perhaps it's someone who you think breathes the wrong way. <laughs> Maybe it's someone that you wouldn't want your name associated with. Maybe it's someone you think is racist. Like, actually racist. <laughs> but it's not up to them to be your neighbor. It's up to you to be a neighbor to them. Jesus doesn't say love people when they become lovable. He says you are the neighbor. You are to love. It's not about waiting until people deserve kindness or until people ask you for kindness. But it's having a disposition, an attitude of kindness, of goodwill. That when you look at people, you don't just look at people who are racist or, or box people up into different categories. I'm going to love this person. I might not love that person. This person is annoying. This person is irritating. This person is offensive. But that disposition of goodwill is to look at someone, even your enemy, as someone who is just like you, made in the image of God with worth and value, deserving the same respect that you deserve. 
Just like you, they have their own struggles and limitations. Just like you, they have good days and bad days. Just like you, they have a family and history. Just like you, they want love and safety. Jesus calls you to that kind of love. And again, it's not just being nice or socially pleasant, but to love. And that love is is difficult because true love is inconvenient. It can be costly. You know, sometimes it just, it even just takes effort to care on a, on a basic level, right? We, you know, we live, in a, we live in an information age where we know all about the disaster of the world at one time, at the click of a button, right? We know what's happening in Croydon, and we know what's happening in Nineveh, or we know what's happening in Syria or New York. We know that at one time we can only expend, or we think we can only expend so much care, right? You look on social media all the time. Everyone loves to share every single little detail of every bit of their life, right? And you just think, ah, yeah, I don't care about that. It's so easy for us to be desensitized to caring. But the kind of love Jesus calls us to uh, is one that Martin Luther King called a dangerous unselfishness. A dangerous unselfishness that doesn't just look at suffering and then look away, but looks and puts ourselves at risk. It puts our desires aside in order to relieve sufferers and to be there when people need us, even when they can do nothing for us. And again, it's messy because people can be resistant and hostile even when we try to help them. I'm not sure if you ever, if you try, ever try to help anyone. Like, I don't need your help. Get off me. <laughs> yeah. But it's realizing that people's, people's hostility sometimes is a cry for help. They're so used to actually not receiving love that when they finally receive love, they just respond with, more hostility. And it doesn't make sense. But true love is able to discern that, that that's the case. That's the possibility. And again, it's difficult because, you know, I can think for myself of so many times that I've, I've decided just to not even get to a place of caring. Right? I just, I don't want to help. I don't want to know. I don't want to get involved in someone else's mess. You know, there's so much today about self-love. And I'd really encourage you, don't buy it, right? The Bible presupposes that you have enough self-love because self-love is instinctive. It's natural to us. It's involuntary. What is not natural to us, what is not extraordinary, or what is extraordinary is being a neighbor because we are naturally self-preservers. And we can find all the excuses not to love our neighbor when it costs us. We're too busy. We're too tired. We blame other people for their own problems. It's their fault. They're an idiot. <laughs> Why should I help? Sometimes we're even just afraid 
because we don't know what it looks like to really involve ourselves in someone's life in a way that costs us. Someone just lost someone, you know, someone just lost a family member. I'm not sure what to say. I'm going to say nothing. Perhaps what you could have said would have encouraged them and comforted them. But sometimes we're so afraid to even get to that place. We fail to show mercy. We fail to show mercy when we discipline our children. We fail to show mercy when we're dealing with difficult family members. We fail to show mercy when we're with that incompetent colleague who just can't get it right. But mercy is not something that people earn. It's only something that can be given. And that's why when Jesus asked, who is the neighbor? It's the one who showed mercy. Which is ironic because the... um, the lawyer couldn't say the Samaritan. He couldn't mention him by name or by race. And Jesus calls us to mercy. Jesus draws our attention to the law because the true essence of the law is mercy and compassion. The true essence of the law is mercy and compassion. The true essence of the law is love. How so? Because God, who is the foundation, God, who is the lawgiver, is himself mercy and compassion. When God reveals his name, that is who he truly is. When he kind of, before Moses, unravels his character, he says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands. The thousands in Hebrew is, to, is almost to say to infinity, forgiving iniquity and rebellion and sin. This parable is not just a good example to follow. And if I preached it as such, it wouldn't be a Christian sermon, right? This parable is, a, is an extension of Christ's Sermon on the Law, sorry, Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> and the Sermon on the Mount roots the law in the very character of God. In Matthew 5, 43 to 48, he says, You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father who is in heaven. Children look like their parents. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? 
Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is why the law begins with God. That's why the first command is a true golden rule, because it begins with God. God does good to his enemies and to those who hate him. God looks upon us who truly want nothing to do with him with compassion in order to heal us and to keep us from eternal danger. And his compassion is not just theoretical, but it's active. And it's shown most clearly in Jesus. People say to us, they love us and they never show it. God shows it. He doesn't just say it. The law says we ought to love our neighbors as ourselves. How do we know what love is? What is the ultimate and final standard from which you get love, from which you get your concept of love? Is it something that is made up? Or do you get it from God? This is how God shows his love among us. He sent his only son. It cost him. He sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we have loved God, right? But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners. Not after we became lovable. Not after we became better people. Not after we clean ourselves up and show God that we are serious about him. But while, while we turned our backs on him, while knowing how corrupted we are, while seeing the part of us that no one else can see, the real us, the bad and ugly us, how selfish we are, how opposed to God we are, God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And again, we can't fulfill the law to love God and neighbor. You know, the lawyers asked, what do I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to come into God's kingdom? And his question misses what is most important because he thinks that God's kingdom is something he can earn through knowledge and religious practice. But the truth is, God does not bestow the life of the kingdom on those who reject God's command to love. God does not bestow the life of the kingdom on those who reject the command to love. But you can only come to that place of love, of loving others, when you recognize your need for God and his mercy on you. When Jesus says, do this and live, the lawyer ought to have said, I can't do that. And acknowledge his need. Acknowledge his need for mercy. 
He should have given himself over to Jesus, who is the merciful and gracious God, not as a theory or as an idea, but as a reality. Come into the world. Come into our lives. For he will have compassion and mercy on everyone who recognizes their need of him and comes to him. The only way to show mercy is to realize your need for mercy. Moving on, verse 38 to 42. Uh, in this final section, Jesus continues his travels and is welcomed into the home of Martha. But as he's there, Martha is very distracted. It's, 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 it's likely she's preparing some kind of elaborate meal. Um, she wants to have the table ready and excellent. Everything is squeaky clean because she's got, you know, the big prophet Jesus has come to the house. But there comes a point that while she's doing that, she gets fed up and she is unhappy because she realizes that she's doing everything by herself. Her sister, who is supposed to be helping her, is hanging out with the guests rather than serving the guests. And it's funny because then she comes to confront Jesus about him, about it. She goes up to, she goes up to Jesus maybe while he's teaching. He's like, Lord, tell her to help me. I'm not sure if many of you, when you have a dinner guest, <laughs> go to them and say, listen, tell my wife to come help me with the dinner. <laughs> but Jesus doesn't do that. He very gently corrects her. Now, there's nothing wrong with Martha's commitment to serve. Sometimes when people preach this, they will say, you should stop serving and sit down, or they make a dichotomy between the two. But I think the main issue in what Martha is doing is that by making herself overly busy, she misses what is most important. Um, at the beginning of Luke 10, Jesus sends out his... He sends out 72 disciples. And because he does that, that's an indication that he's, his time is short. His time is urgent. And so every last minute, every second with Jesus is very important. Because he's not going to be around for much longer. And Martha misses that. And even just on a basic level, Martha invited a guest to her house and then ignored the guest the whole time. Too deeply distracted by service, she forgets the one she is serving. And I wonder if there's a sense in which that is an issue for us as well. This brings us back to the idea of missing what is most important. When we miss what's most important... The kind of Christianity that we will live is one that looks right on the outside, but if you press it, is really a way of avoiding God. And if the parable of the Good Samaritan corrects our view of the second command, then perhaps this section corrects our view of the first command. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, the, the, the knowledge of the lawyer... And the desire, perhaps, of the 
priest and of the Levite to not touch a dead body or a half-dead body or bloody body in order to keep serving in the temple so they can serve God, as good as it is, actually evades Jesus. The knowledge of the lawyer evades Jesus. And here, Martha's good works, as good as they are, actually keep her from Jesus. And it's interesting, both knowledge and good works are ways that we try and justify ourselves before God and before other people. But in verse 41, Jesus, he's not harsh with Mary, right? He says, Martha, Martha, which again in kind of Hebrew culture is, the, the, the repetition of the name is, it indicates intimacy. It indicates, it's, you know, it's endearing. Martha, Martha, it shows care. And maybe in a similar way, the Lord wants to gently draw near to us because we too try to hide behind good works and behind knowledge in order to justify ourselves while avoiding Jesus. There might be some of us who are really thinking about believing in Jesus and becoming a Christian But we think that in order to come, we have to clean ourselves up, get it together, and then come to Jesus. And that sounds good. I've met so many people who say, I'm going to come. I've just got to get things right. But it's really another way of avoiding Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't require that of you. He just wants you to come. The only requirement of coming to Jesus is to be a sinner. Perhaps there are some of us who have been faithfully serving in church for years or doing some kind of good, good works, good things for God for many years, but we never truly have the time or the desire to actually be with Jesus. Perhaps some of us use knowledge to look like we're close to God. We listen to sermon after sermon and read book after book, and we can sound deep. We know all the words, all the phrases, but we never honestly face Jesus. We're so focused on following a particular Bible plan to a T, right, and having a a kind of Instagrammable devotional time where you've got your coffee in your hand, you've got a fountain pen for for your lovely leather journal, that you're going to write your lovely notes in cursive. (laughs) But you never truly and really honestly say, Lord, I need you. Many things can be good things, but even good things become destructive when they keep us from what's most important. Many good things can be good things, but even good things can become destructive when they keep us from what is most important. We need to be people who love and serve others. We should be a neighbor like Jesus. But our greatest call 
is to be a lover, a disciple of Jesus, to love God. If we are disciples of Jesus, we are to be in the position of Mary, sitting, body still, mind engaged, heart captivated, and soul immersed in Jesus, giving him everything that we've got, listening to him and submitting to what he asks of us. It's understanding that his claim on us is what is most important in our lives. If we are to be a disciple of Jesus, it's to refuse to justify ourselves by the good things we do or by the knowledge that we have. And it's to drop all else and open up the empty hands of faith and let God justify us in Christ by his great mercy because we cannot keep his law. If we look to Jesus alone, not only will he justify us in his kindness and mercy, but he will empower us and produce within us the love and mercy that we lack. Paul tells us in Romans 12.1 to present our bodies, all of our whole selves, as a living sacrifice to God. On what basis? He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. God's mercy itself drives us back to loving him with all of our hearts and souls and bodies and minds. And it's God's mercy that drives us to love our neighbors and to show them mercy. As we truly recognize our need and receive his mercy and compassion in Christ, God himself, as an outflow of his mercy from us, or his mercy to us, will cultivate within us, will grow within us, true mercy and compassion to love our neighbors as ourselves. God does not just give us more rules, but he will give us a new heart. And so the golden rule is not most fundamentally to love our neighbor. Because without God, we have no basis for loving our neighbor. And not only do we not have any basis, we don't have any true ability to love our neighbor in the way that God requires it's only in recognizing and living in and receiving God's mercy that we can truly show mercy to others and be like the Good Samaritan. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you show great mercy to sinners. You show great mercy to people who themselves have made themselves, your enemies. You look upon us lovingly and offer us the forgiveness of all of our sins. You look upon us lovingly, even though we are unable to keep your law. 
Thank you, Lord, for your mercy. Thank you for your kindness and grace to us who did not deserve mercy and grace. Help us, Lord, in that mercy to show mercy and love and compassion to others. Help us to have that dangerous unselfishness. Help us, Lord, to not justify ourselves through our knowledge and through our good works. Help us not even to justify ourselves by the way that we love our neighbors. But help us, Lord, to only be justified by faith in Jesus Christ, who died for our sins, rose again. All who come to him and receive him will receive eternal life. Help us, Lord, to know that it's not about what we do, but it's about your mercy. I pray that would be with us, not only in this week, but through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.